Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Spies and Lies, an espionage podcast, delving into and analyzing acts of espionage throughout history, tracing the exploits of daring spies, covert operations, assassinations, hacking, secret organizations, and more. Co-hosted by me, Omri Rose, who spent his childhood living undercover, thanks to his dear old dad and co-host, Jason, a retired former spymaster of one of the top intelligence agencies in the world. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Casanova, a lover, adventurer, and spy. It was a hot July night in 1755. The Venetian Inquisition had just arrested Casanova in his bedroom for an affront to religion and common decency. They imprisoned him within the Doge's palace in a place called the Leeds for an undisclosed period of time. Despair might have overcome him, but he was no ordinary man, and he had found an iron bar that gave him hope. Using the tool, he sharpened it into a spike and then began to dig, dig and dig for months on end. And just days before his planned escape, the jailer appeared. Sticking his head through the grating, the jailer said, I give you joy, sir, for the good news I am bringing you. Not able to think of any other news that could be good except a pardon, Casanova trembled, for if his hole was discovered, his pardon would surely be recalled. But it was not a pardon. Instead, the jailer came to tell Casanova that he was being moved to a more spacious and well-lit cell. Casanova longing to be able to take his precious months of work with him. Of course, when he was moved, the hall was discovered. But Casanova still managed to escape. So, Casanova. We'll find out how he escaped later. But what do you what do you think? What are your general first impressions? Well, looking at the history of the of the gentleman, everybody knows him for some of his uh, other exploits, other things that he was known for. Not a lot of people know that he did do espionage work and how he actually did it. And I think that's what we will emphasize on this chapter. So anyone who wants to listen to other parts of Casanova should probably go to different. Yes, this is this is not a uh, exactly a, a highlight reel a guide of for, his uh, exactly conquests of other types. Although there is a f- there is a common element with all the things he did, and that is his uh, ability to charm and act 
and get away with things. Absolutely. I mean, being charming is uh, a valuable asset to gain information, to get out of tight spots, and just about anything. Because as we've been hammering home, everything is personal. And if you're charming, you're much more personable. Sometimes people who charm are sometimes considered liars. But is that really a lie? Well, what, just what is a, way, a lie? A white lie or, is it just or a, a way bending of the truth? To get, to get information in a very nice way. So let us hear how Mr. Casanova dealt with the problem that he had to deal with. Absolutely. Casanova was born in the Republic of Venice in April 2nd of 1725. This was during the Age of Enlightenment. There were many new intellectual and philosophical pursuits available to everyone, and it was a, a much more liberal time and, and a much more liberal approach to sexuality, which Casanova certainly took advantage of. Casanova, of course, is most well known for his sexual exploits and adventuring throughout Europe. But, as we'll find out, he also was a spy. He died on the 4th of June in 1798 in Bohemia, of all places, during his second exile from Venice. But how does one get exiled from Venice? Why did he seem to be getting into trouble all over the place? Well, throughout his lifetime, Casanova dabbled in many different uh, professions, met many different famous people, including Voltaire, who he debated with, Rousseau, and even Ben Franklin, the pair discussing the merits of thunderstorms. At the time, the Venetian Inquisition was incredibly important because Venice was in decline. The Renaissance had passed. We were now in the Age of Enlightenment. The Renaissance, which happened before the Age of Enlightenment, had brought the Italian states to the forefront, Venice and Florence flourishing with this invigorated burst of knowledge. But at this point, the rest of Europe was catching up, and Venice seemed to be going in a decline, losing its relevance through the century, until its inevitable fall at the end of the century. The Inquisition was tasked with stopping this decline, seeking out any troublesome individuals or any negative organizations or effects that could be influencing Venice's power. Cities were growing in size and complexity during this time in Europe, and diversity sparked the need for surveillance because different traditions created different frictions. But it was learned that intelligence was the most useful way in tracking down crime and threat, not brute force. And this coincided with the rise of the police departments around and across Europe, as well as secret police, instead of the traditional city guard, who really were just muscle, essentially. It also meant an increase in observations within cities. It's interesting how, when you look at it from the point of view of growth of a place, when if it's just a village or just a, your family home, you don't need people to tell you what's going on because you know what's going on. But when there's more people around and it becomes bigger and stronger and there's more people who, who want to take over, whoever's in power feels the need that he has to know more about what's going on. And then it develops the need to, of knowledge of places that you don't usually have great access to. It's, it's especially interesting how you know the rise of multiculturalism sparks this friction between cultures. So you need people who know how to navigate and understand what's going on. And in, as a result, an increase in kind of surveillance. All of a sudden, being a spy or giving information is actually a profession. It's like a job. It's not just something. It's not a hobby. And that's, that's an interesting part of where things develop. Absolutely. Casanova was born to impoverished actors. He eventually fell under the tutelage of a clergyman. And it was with the clergyman's younger sister, Bettina, that Casanova's first sexual encounter at the ripe age of 11 occurred. He fondled her, and I'm sure she fondled him. This set the course of his whole life, what we eventually came to know of his name, 
and of his reputation. But his first true sexual encounter occurred later with two sisters, Nanette and Martin, who snuck into his bedroom at night and did the deed. This furthered his taste for beautiful women and the finer things in life. Casanova, it must be said, was a bit of a dilettante. He had a law degree, though he wanted to study medicine but was not permitted to. He dabbled in it on the side. He was also interested in a multitude of other topics, and throughout his life, he had many, many different professions, including an abbot or clergyman known as an abe. He was a scribe, a military officer, a violinist, a monk, a writer, and of course, a spy. The clergy and the military were two traditional ways at the time for people to earn money and prestige, especially those from the lower classes, or those without money who were impoverished, or even the fourth or fifth son in a family who had no other career opportunities. As for Casanova, the military was not particularly well suited for him. He wasn't one to follow orders so rigidly, and he felt that his advancement when he did join the military was very slow, and the duty itself quite boring. He was a gambler through and through, gambling for most of his life. Which you could say spying is a bit of bit like gambling, no? I disagree. You disagree? That's taking a gamble on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I mean, you suppose you try to mitigate your risk in spying, in the different elements of spying, but there is a sense of gambling. Not, there there could be a connection. Yes, there's gambling, but it's more of a percentage. Uh, if you, you know you're going to have to meet a number amount of people before you get to the answer you need. But that's not... Gambling, that's understanding the odds. So it's a bit different. Yeah, but a gambler would say it's about understanding the odds as well. As I'm not a gambler, <laughs> I will not tell you if I agree to that. Sure. <laughs> Casanova was frequently involved in scandals, cons, and practical jokes, often many of them catching up with him and getting him into trouble. Though his womanizing and flirtations got him into trouble individually with people, it really was his debts that plagued him the most in life. Again, motive from both sides that means he's recruitable. That means there's a... Why is he recruitable? Well, because he needs money and he's willing to do something for it and he's a gambler. So for him, he needs the money. So And there's a quick way of making money. He's not going to go and work in a normal place just to collect penny to penny and then pay for his rent. So he needs quick money and quick thrills. And where else will he get it? So you're saying spying is like gambling because it's quick thrills and easy to attain? I thought you just said it wasn't like, like gambling. It is not like gambling. It's better. <laughs> <laughs> so is that why you don't gamble? Exactly. I see. Because you don't need it. You get your thrills elsewhere. Gambling, you have to allow yourself to lose. In spying, you have to be in a scenario where you don't lose. Okay. You try to mitigate your loss and risks as much as possible. That's the outcome, but not the actual act of spying. Well, I have played poker with you, so you do gamble a little. As long as I win. <laughs> Which you often do. Casanova had to flee Venice twice in his life. First, due to his arrest, which we touched upon, but we'll come back to later. And a second time he had to leave Venice because he was um, very critical of the upper class of Venice, which also we'll touch upon as we get to that stage of his life. Early on, Casanova gained a wealthy patron for life through sheer luck. He saved a senator from cardiac arrest after the senator suffered from a stroke and collapsed onto a gondola after a wedding ball. Casanova, seeing this, rushed to get a doctor, the pair heading to the gondola and trying to save the senator, the doctor immediately having the senator bled and applying an ointment of mercury, an all-purpose but toxic remedy at the time. The senator began choking on his own swollen windpipe as a priest was called, death seeming inevitable. But Casanova refused this, 
Seeing an opportunity here, and using the medical knowledge that he had, he demanded that the physician remove the mercury and treat the wounds how he wanted it. And in spite of the protests from the physician, this was done. The senator was washed, and he recovered with rest and a sensible diet. Again, using your talents, even though you might not know everything, but you pretend you know much more than actually you do. And it makes you uh, get favors that maybe you were not there before. He saw an opportunity and he seized it. Yes. Because of Casanova's youth and medical knowledge, the senator and two of the senator's bachelor friends thought Casanova was wise beyond his years. They concluded that he must possess some sort of occult knowledge that this doctor didn't have, because otherwise why didn't the doctor save him? See, the senator and his two friends were Kabbalists themselves, who believed in the occult. And the senator that Casanova saved invited Casanova to live in his household, becoming Casanova's lifelong patron. This was in Casanova's early 20s, and having this patron allowed him to get an allowance, live like a wealthy senator in some ways, and basically enjoy life. You know, the senator didn't have a family, didn't have children, and he kind of became the senator's son in a certain extent. Very lucky. Throughout his life... Casanova was involved in all sorts of little schemes here and there. From this whole Kabbalist introduction, he took it to heart and began studying this and at one point claimed to be an alchemist and 300 years old and other obvious lies, of course. He once even convinced a noblewoman that he could transform her into a young man, forced to flee, of course, when this was found out to be untrue. He also became a Freemason, which afforded him great contacts amongst the aristocracy. And for those of you who don't know, Freemasonry is a secret society that was, uh, I believe, founded by some Scottish aristocracy. Uh, it's originally from Scotland, I believe. And uh, it's a secret society with, you know, like a lot of secret societies, different um, rituals and beliefs. But it is well known to be practiced or to have members all over the world in well-positioned places. At least that's the rumors. Um of course, connected to the Templars. Aha, and connected to those all-famous Templars. Casanova traveled all over, primarily frequenting Venice and Paris. He wrote his memoir later in life, which he titled Historie de ma vie, History of my life, and as implied by the title, he wrote it in French. I know what you're thinking. Where does the spine come in? Well, we're getting there. After what he called the grand tour of traveling across Europe debauching, notably in Paris, he resumed his shenanigans in Venice in about 1753. Pranks, duels, gambling, romancing. But in 1755, he earned the ire of the Inquisition, imprisoning him for public affronts against the holy religion. He was 30, and already had quite the reputation for trouble. So how did he escape? And when did he start spying? After Casanova's first escape attempt failed, Casanova aligned himself with another prisoner, Father Balbi, who'd sired children with three separate women who were trusted into his care, not the priest confessor you want to send your daughters to. The pair conspired through exchanged notes, fooling the jailer into believing in an educated discussion, even smuggling a chisel through a Bible. Father Balbi needed to chisel his way through the wall until they were reunited. However, a complication occurred. A new cellmate appeared. Sordaci, and Casanova had to spin a grand tale to Sordaci that it was an angel who would dig a hole through the ceiling to help extract him. Of course, Sordaci heard the labor above, so he needed an explanation. He questioned why an angel would have to work so hard to save them, and Casanova replied, 
The ways of God are inscrutable, and since the messenger of heaven works not as an angel, for then a slight single blow would be enough, he works like a man, whose form he has doubtless taken, as we are not worthy to look upon his celestial body. And furthermore, I foresee that the angel, to punish us for your evil thought, which has offended the holy virgin, will not come today. Wretch, your thoughts are not those of an honest, pious, and religious man, but those of a sinner. Those words are taken, of course, from Casanova's memoir. This works so well, convincing Sordaci so much that he agrees to shave Father Bobley's and Casanova's beards once they're reunited. And with their new looks, they traverse a treacherous roof, re-enter through a window, and practically walk out of Venice as free men. The escape only growing Casanova's reputation for trouble, mischief, and adventure. And believing in himself that he can tell stories and people will believe. And that, I think, is fundamental for the later when you see what he did. Absolutely. His ability to convince people and to get what he wanted helped him so much later in life. Well, after his escape from the Leeds, he, of course, was not allowed to be in Venice because that's where he was wanted. He went off to France, where in 1756, the Seven Years' War had broken out which was a war between France and Britain. The war escalating so much that the colonies of both nations got involved, and financial costs, among other things, eventually would partially lead to the U.S. Revolution. On behalf of France, Casanova began selling lottery tickets and state bonds, using his great charisma and charm to do quite well at this, making a very nice sum. But, unfortunately, his poor business practices and pension for women drained his coffers. Needless to say, his gambling was not helpful in this regard either. He'd also tried to convince other states to partake in a lottery system, traveling to Germany, England, Russia, but they weren't as interested as France was at the time. And so finally, in 1757, Casanova found employment from the foreign minister of France, de Bernice, who was an old friend, and he was sent on his first mission to Dunkirk to investigate the English fleet there and see if the English king's claims of having his navy ready for war were true. Interesting how he got recruited. A friend brought him in who knew of his abilities. Wasn't some chance encounter. No. And it's interesting afterwards about what he was told, how he had to carry out his mission. Because I think that's very, very interesting to understand the psychology of actually of spying and as well of how he had to practice his profession. And if you can continue, you'll, you, it will be clear. Absolutely. And well, one thing is also clear is that Casanova had a fantastic memory. Uh, He was able to recall in great detail so much of his life. Well, it's important to remember all the ladies you were with. (laughs) I suppose it was charming if she said, have you met me before? And he says, no, and it doesn't work very well. As a foreign agent, Casanova would have no ties to the French. He was not supplied with a passport. And the foreign minister, de Bernice, told him, as you are on a secret mission, my dear Casanova, I... uh, Yes, he coughed in the middle of this book. Very very strange. As you are on a secret mission, my dear Casanova, I cannot give you a passport. I am sorry for it, but if I did so, your object would be suspected. However, you will easily be able to get one from the first gentleman of the chamber, on some pretext or other. You quite understand how discreet your behavior must be. Above all, do not get into any trouble, for I suppose you know that if anything happened to you, it would be of no use to talk of your mission. We should be obliged to know nothing about you, for ambassadors are the only avowed spies. So here we have a recollection of the first time, like the Mission Impossible series, where 
you're, if you get caught, we have to deny any connection or contact with you. Basically saying to him, you're on your own, mate. You have to manage by yourself. We're not giving you any support. And if you get caught, we have to deny that we have anything to do with you. And that's how the tools he had to go with. His wit, his capabilities, and the understanding that he is working for someone, but he mustn't say anything about it. It's interesting they talk about passports here. You know, we, we think of passports as a new, newer phenomenon, at least in my mind, I envision them as a newer phenomenon. But just goes to show you that we had passports all the way back then. Obviously not yes. the passport we know today, yes, but correct. these things existed. And how important it was even then, how important it is now to have passports when you're traveling and doing different operations and things. I particularly like the last sentence that DuBernice says. We should be obligated to know nothing about you, for ambassadors are the only avowed spies. So it was like, it was a game that everybody played it, but it had rules. And the rules are, the spying is done by my official people who are sent there by our ambassadors. They're allowed to get information and receive information. Officially. Officially. But clandestine ways are not the way we're supposed to do it. His mission was a little bit more specific than just to to go and see what's going on with the fleet. According to Casanova's memoir, his mission was paying a visit to eight or ten men of war in the roads at Dunkirk, of making the acquaintance of the officers, and of completing a minute and circumstantial report of the numbers of seamen, the guns, the ammunition, discipline, etc., etc. Etc., etc. is what he wrote. So he, uh, he didn't really take the spying thing so seriously, as we'll find also. Uh, I, I don't think so. I would like to disagree on that one. Okay, disagree. He didn't want to go into detail, but if you look at the way he conducted himself, he went into very, very detail. Oh, he was very good at it. Yes. No doubt. But And he took it seriously. He, oh, yeah, he took everything he did seriously. Very well. But this was not his passion. His passion lay between his legs and between other people's legs. His passion was a bit different than the normal. Let's put it that way. His passion was very passionate. He performed very well at his spying duties. He performed very well in all matters of duties, <laughs> apparently. Casanova states that after seating himself at a tavern well frequented by the English, several patrons arrived and card play began, which I did not participate in, as I wished to study the manner of the place and, above all, particular officers who were present. By speaking with an air of authority about naval matters and by saying I had served in the navy of the Venetian Republic, in three days I not only knew but was intimate with all the captains of the Dunkirk fleet. I talked at random about naval architecture, about the Venetian system of maneuvers, and I noticed that the jolly sailors were pleased more by my blunders than by my sensible remarks. Let me, let me, this is a very interesting chapter and a very interesting way how he did it. I love this quote. It's great. I love the whole episode here because you can imagine how his mind was thinking and you can see he didn't go he didn't have any training but no. he understood he understood people he understood people and he understood okay i want don't want to get to involved with the soldiers i want to go to the higher ranking guys but first of all i have to know where they're sitting and where they go so i had to decide where's the best place to go i'm sure there were a couple of inns or a couple of places they could go and he from his observation figured out that the best place to start would be sitting in a tavern where sailors go to, because that's what sailors do when they're on shore. Then the question was, do I immediately make myself to mingle with the people? And which ones do I mingle with? No. He sat down and observed and waited for his moment and decided to act only when he realized that he had a more or less a 
the bigger picture of who he wants to do and what he wants to approach. Then he had a cover story to say. What was his cover story? How can I speak to these guys to make it interesting for them to talk to me or for me to make myself uh, in a position that they would want my company? So he knows things because he's from Venice. And of course, Venice is ships and, and merchants. Canals, yes. Canals. Yeah. So he can talk about things. And he's talking about places that probably these guys haven't been to. Or, but they've heard of, and he's in the right age that he can be not just someone simple, but someone who knows something. And it makes it interesting for them to talk to him because he can talk about things. Now, every time someone says something to him, he uses it afterwards to make himself, his knowledge, his bank of knowledge, higher and better. That allows him to be like, have more authority about what he says. And slowly, slowly, he builds up a reputation of someone that they want to talk to. And then the next thing happens, and of course, we will hear what happened. Well, well, also, you know, he's a charming guy, as we've said earlier. Yes. They like him. They get along with him. He's also not French. He's Venetian, right? So he's not the enemy. He's not a threat. He's not a threat. They feel comfortable with him. He's not a young man at this point. He's not an old man, but he's in his, you know... In his 30s? Early Middle Ages for that yes. time, you know. So he's also not a young fighter who's going to, you know, he's, they don't necessarily view him as a threat, as you said. I also love that he didn't play cards. You know, I just know he's sitting there and he would love to play cards, right? Because he's a big gambler and he loves this, but he doesn't. So he has temperance. He's able to control his, his urges and his desires. He takes his job seriously. He takes his job seriously, even though he doesn't take much joy in, in spying, I believe. Well, let us see. We'll see. But also, uh, I like that they, they laughed more at his blunders than his successes, because he didn't know what he was talking about. And they loved the fact that this Venetian idiot, as far as they were concerned, maybe a bit used to be a sailor, doesn't really know things anymore. I love that. Anyway, Casanova continued. Four days after I arrived in Dunkirk... One of the captains asked me to dine on his ship. After that engagement, all the others did likewise. And on every occasion, I stayed on the ship for the rest of the day. I was curious about everything. And Jack is so trustful. I ventured into the hold, asked questions innumerable, and found plenty of young officers delighted to show off their own importance, gossiping without any encouragement from me. I was careful, however, to learn everything which could be valuable. And in the evenings, I committed to paper all the mental notes I had made during the day. Four or five hours was all I allowed myself for sleep. And in 15 days, I felt I had learned enough. It's uh, quite remarkable. We look at it today. I mean, what would you want someone to do? I want, I want him to be in a scenario where he is not initiating going on a ship, but he wants them to initiate. To be invited. To be invited. And that's, that's from, from our profession, that's the best way you want to, to do the introduction. Then when they think back, they say, well, he didn't ask to go on board. I invited him. So he feels very comfortable that what he's doing is very natural and is not jeopardizing himself. And as you remember, the guy, uh, his uh, patron, when he writes reports, says, don't get into trouble. And he's not getting into trouble. He's doing it very naturally. And everybody wants to talk to him and show them their ship and their abilities, and it gives them the great opportunity to ask questions and wander around and collect information. So from a spying point of view, fantastic asset, fantastic work of making contact, uh, even in today's world. This is exactly what you want from your agent and the way you want him to work. I mean, if you think about it, then, 15 thing, days. Yes, amazing. amazing. What else I liked about it is the reporting. Everybody thinks uh, spying is just, you go out and do the spying. Yes, 
someone has to you have to write it down somewhere and you don't and, take notes and you don't take it. notes because wait a minute how many calendars did you say you have well, let me write it down or where exactly are you going now and then you write it down no 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 you this don't speaks do. to his memory exactly but you're known to have a good memory on occasion what did you say <laughs> so not hearing memory uh, uh, okay it's the same thing uh so in this case I, I like the fact that he emphasizes the that he, the need even in his memories to write a report and in our world it's very important because if you did something and didn't report it, and who knows about it? It's, it's nothing. have to have the written report. You have to have a written report. And it has to be coherent and long enough or short enough, not to have too much rubbish in it, but get to the point. But you have to give a lot of color so people understand what you're talking about. So I, I, the way he wrote his, uh, his memoirs, I would say that he, in his reporting, he really put a lot, he put a lot in the reporting. And he felt it important to him to write the reports properly. And what he doesn't say here is how actually it was delivered. Did he just collect it? Probably just waited until he had the reports, hid them somewhere or had them somewhere. And then... Well, he wasn't suspect. He He probably just stuck them in his coat and left. Well... Because he he took the reports back with him. Yes. But then for 15 days, he's accumulating reports. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fair enough. No telegrams back then. No or, telegrams, huh. no pigeons, yeah. uh, no couriers, no some, uh, someone else. And it wasn't episode. so pressing that they would need to try to smuggle them exactly, immediately. Exactly, yeah. unless he felt that there was some information he had sure. to But he didn't. So he had enough information to understand, okay, I got all the information I need. From now on, it's just a waste of my time. And then after 15 days, when he felt he had enough, he, he decided left. to go back. Yes. Yes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. So, one thing that I just want to stress here is that, um, or stress, comment about is Casanova mentions in his memoirs tools to seduce women and ways that you can do this. And one of the things that he says is that the, the, the key to a woman's heart seems like dated advice, but back then might have been relevant, is to listen. 
to listen and show interest. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And if you think about Casanova doing that and applying that to maybe these younger officers, he was invited by the ship's captain. So he's an important person. And then he goes and he shows interest in a younger officer. They're interested. They want to talk because he's showing interest. When you show interest with people, they talk. I mean, you have a little bit of a reputation that uh, you have a whole conversation with you. And as you leave, you think, oh, that was a great conversation. Wait a minute. He didn't tell me anything. And I told him everything. So when you show interest and you ask questions, pointed questions that are relevant. Well, the secret is that he thinks that it was a great conversation, even though he didn't hear anything from me. <laughs> that is the art. Yes. Not uh, that he comes out of it saying, wait a minute. He didn't say, tell me anything. The art is, you know that you told him nothing. And you got a lot out of him. But he doesn't feel that way. Sure. Otherwise, it's only one way. When Casanova returned to Paris, he was very modest in his memoirs, writing of his success. He said, This mission cost the Admiralty 12,000 francs, and the minister might easily have procured all the information I gave him without spending a penny. Any intelligent young naval officer would have done it just as well. But all the French ministers were the same. They lavished money which came out of other people's pockets to enrich their creatures, and they were absolute. The downtrodden people counted for nothing. And of this course, the indebtedness of the state and the confusion of the finances were the inevitable result. A bit bitter about the aristocracy, isn't he? Well, those are the times and those are the people. I mean, you're born into it. It wasn't, you didn't have to have any qualifications, so any idiot could be one. Yes. And um, probably there were a lot of idiots. There's no shortage. No, and, and had money because they took it from the poor. Here's the thing, the though. He says that any young naval officer, I disagree with that fully. I mean, yes, I don't. it needed someone like him to go and do this. So he's yes. speaking to his modesty. But I think he honestly is feeling that because, like I said, he doesn't take the spying thing so seriously. When he does it, he takes it seriously. But, you know, he, he's very honest in his memoirs. He talks about very dark and not flattering things as well. So anyway. But uh, I would look at it in a different angle as well when he says any young naval officer could have brought this information. I think... After the 15 days, he was an expert on the subject matter that he was looking into. Sure, yeah. And he could then go and meet any naval officer in the French Navy and talk about things that 15 days ago he couldn't have talked about. Absolutely. And he'd become an expert by talking to people and listening to people. And then you, every time he met someone and listening to him, he used it afterwards for his next job or for his next performance. That's what makes him, in my opinion... Very, very good. Well, he was very knowledgeable. Yes. Very knowledgeable on many different topics. And that's what you want. Yeah, which, which you want. But a Renaissance yes. man, even though it was the Enlightenment. Yes. <laughs> of course, Casanova's misadventures continued. Not staying long in the espionage business after uh, his little stint for France, he began using a different name. In 1760, he started calling himself Chevalier de Singalt, likely due to avoid uh, growing debts and the reputation that followed Casanova wherever it went. Uh, at one point, he tried to renounce his ways as a monk, even. That didn't last long. He, in fact, um, had a few affairs with some nuns in this monastery when he did that. So, good old Casanova. Well, he learned it from the priest in prison that he had three wives. <laughs> yes, sure. <laughs> It's a, uh, it's a holy way to do it. And even in even traveling so far as Poland, he got himself into trouble when he uh, dueled a Polish officer named Braniki over the affections of an Italian actress. Dueling was illegal at the time in Warsaw, so uh, as a result of the duel, he was forced to flee yet another state. He also nearly lost his hand in the duel, uh, and it was recommended to be amputated by the doctor, but we all know how much Casanova likes doctors, and he refused. Thankfully, he recovered fully. 
Branicki, on the other hand, thought he'd die due to his stomach wound that uh, he got from Casanova's bullet. Uh, but he took it all very well, all things considered, and uh, it was a very gentlemanly duel. In fact, he even offered Casanova money to run away if he didn't have the means to after the duel. So who got the lady in the end? I don't understand. <laughs> Neither got the lady. He had to leave and he had a stomach wound. So what's the moral of the story? Don't start with Italians. <laughs> don't start with Italians. <laughs> okay, mamma mia. Um, Casanova returned to Venice uh, and made a deal with the Venetian inquisitors, reluctantly, of course, the same inquisitors who had imprisoned him earlier. He would act as a confidant. His reputation and contacts allowing him to collect reports from con men and gamblers and all sorts of uh, nefarious types as to the going abouts in Venice, of course, for the greater glory of Venice. They also wanted to know how he escaped the prison, which uh, was quite a well-known story. And of course, so they would make sure this would never happen again. There are actually 48 letters in the archives of Venice about kind of the, the Inquisitors and, and um, Casanova, and I'm going to share a few of them. So between May and July of 1779, Casanova wrote, Excursion in the market of Ancona for information concerning the commercial relations of the pontifical states with the Republic of Venice. So pretty straightforward, going about, trying to find information about relationships between the Pope, pontifical states, and Republic of Venice. And then January 1790, remarking a clandestine recruiting carried out by a certain Marazzani for the Prussian regiment of Zarembal. So here he's talking about a clandestine recruiting for a foreign state. The Inquisition could have done with that what they wanted. Maybe arrest the person who was being uh, recruited or maybe turning them into a double agent or following them, allowing them to be recruited so they could follow them. Also, there was one particularly uh, very Casanova-like report which talked about a scandalous ballet called Coriolanus, which occurred on the 26th of November, 1781. Report concerning a painting academy where nude studies were made from models of both sexes, while scholars only 12 or 13 years of age were admitted, and where dilettantes, who were neither painters nor designers, attended the sessions. Ooh la la, so scandalous. That's, I would say, something more than his... More his, more his cup of tea. More his cup of tea. I'm sure he uh, had to investigate that one quite thoroughly himself. Many days. Yes. Um, but his second career as a spy in Venice was perhaps not as glamorous as his first. Uh, more an informant, an information gatherer amongst low life and Maybe not rumor, low life, but rumor look, mills. I look at it this way. He found out that by his ability to bring information, he could live the life he wanted to in his back in his own town. And... Again, he he didn't run agents uh, as you per se like uh, like others that we've we've spoke about or had a network. So it was him. It was all about him. He was all an about, informant, a spy. He was who he was, and the the big secret that he wa that was from his point of view was that he worked for something a bigger cause in his mind. Yes, and we, we'll, we'll touch it in the end because it was a very interesting quote about it. But from his point of view, it allowed him to do, as you said, the other passions that he wanted and allowed him to live the kind of lifestyle that he felt was suitable for him yes. uh, without really doing any work, but just being there, listening and report what he hears. Eventually, unfortunately, though, Casanova was exiled once again from Venice after writing a play that was rather scathing in its commentary against the nobility. He found himself settled in Bohemia and outlived the government of the Republic of Venice. But due to his age, he didn't return. 
In his final years, he wrote his memoir for which he is famous and for which he is truly well known. In his life, though, he did write over 20 works, plays, essays, letters. He translated the Odyssey and the Iliad into Italian. And his novel, Ico Samarin, I believe that's how you pronounce it, is even an early work of science fiction. So there you go, science fiction in the 1700s. Prince Charles de Lene, who understood Casanova well and knew most of the prominent individuals of the age, thought Casanova was the most interesting man he had ever met, saying, There is nothing in the world of which he is not capable, before adding, The only things about which he knows nothing are those which he believes himself to be expert, the rules of the dance, the French language, good taste, the way of the world. Savior vive. It is only his comedies which are not funny, only his philosophical works which lack philosophy. All the rest are filled with it. There is always something weighty, new, profound. He is a well of knowledge. But he quotes Homer and Horace ad nauseum. His wit and his sallies are like attic salt. He is sensitive and generous, but displease him in the slightest, and he is unpleasant, vindictive, and detestable. He believes in nothing except what is most incredible, being superstitious about everything. He loves and lusts after everything. He is proud because he is nothing. Never tell him you have heard the story he is going to tell you. Never omit to greet him in passing, for the mere trifle will make him your enemy. Of course, this is Casanova at a later age, when he's a little bit more bitter and grumpy. Grumpy. Lost his looks and all this stuff. And maybe his other abilities. Well, yes, certainly. So that's Casanova. That's uh, the description of him. He was truly uh, a man of many, many talents, brilliant in many, many ways, and truly was the definition, one could say, of the Enlightenment era and that class of people at the time. Would you hire him? Yes. That was a quick response. Yes. He has abilities that you need in certain typical kinds of jobs. The ability to blend in, to make yourself interesting. Blend in? Blend in. He's always going to stand out. Yes, but he's able to stand out by blending in. He's able to go to a place that he knows nothing about, and maybe he has no information about it before, and about the subject, himself. and feel comfortable to be there. That's what I mean, blend in. I see. He's able to get information, show interest that looks like a genuine interest, allows people to talk, allows uh, them to open up to him, and the most important, they don't see him as a threat. All good characters or good trade crafts for certain people that you need in your organization. He would probably be very, not very good in, as a desk officer <laughs> or sitting behind a desk. I'm sure the secretaries would have loved him. Yeah. But don't get so much work done. It wouldn't be sitting behind the desk very much. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> I'm just saying that this is a guy you want in the field who gives you information and who has puts on masks and loves his work. Just make sure he doesn't gamble too much and loses everything, loses his trousers. <laughs> so you touched on this next question, but I mean, why use a man like Casanova? Wouldn't his reputation and the fact that he was so known work against him though? He was never a threat because he wasn't French, he wasn't British. He was, I don't know if the French or British even heard of Casanova at the time. It's, they haven't, they probably didn't. It wasn't someone you knew. It well, was, I mean, certain wasn't aristocratic like, circles were known, but yes, there wasn't but like television working, or radio no, that the name not. got around. It was, it was yeah. not on, in, in YouTube or anything like that. So 
it wasn't his face wasn't there. Then again, maybe his uh, reputation made a good cover story. You know, the fact that he was maybe somewhat well known in different places and his grandiose character, you wouldn't believe he was actually an he's, agent, certainly for France, which wasn't his home first of nation. All, he could say he was Italian. That's no problem. Italians were not a threat. He Venetian, could, darling. Venetian. Yes, Italian, Venetian. Yes, yes. but back then they, they yes, didn't, they didn't call Venetian. themselves Italians. No, uh, yes, I agree. Venetian, with all the history of the Venetian history. And it made sense to talk about shipping and water and, and capabilities. And he was very comfortable about it. If, if we would ask him to go up and climb a mountain and talk about mountains and terrains, I don't think that's... His forte. That's not what he would want to do. So de Bernice sent him on a very apt task. Yes, and he gave a good report and gave a good answer. I don't know what he did with it afterwards, but he got paid for it and he enjoyed it. But, you know, he was there for two weeks. But look how much, even in his memories, how much important he put in it and uh, and how much he's, he's talking about it as a, one of his main establishments. Or his main memoirs things. are quite long. so Yes, they are. But still... If you live for that long and you still have a chapter. Do that much. <laughs> and in the detail as well. Yes, not just, yes. uh, okay, I did some spying and I bought some information. But how I did it, how I went about it, he felt proud about it. Would he be considered an unreliable asset? All the gambling and the deception? In all his memories and the stories that we hear, he never, he never betrayed his masters. Only his own money and his own self. Yes. He, wasn't, he didn't sell himself. He wasn't a double agent. He never played one against the other. He was loyal to someone, maybe they fell out with him and then moved to somewhere else. But when he was loyal, he was loyal. I think there's a link between seduction and espionage, as in like ingratiating oneself to the target, as we said, being charming. Yes, there's always a connection. So seducers make good spies? Not in that point of view. It's the ability to persuade the other guy or the other person, man or woman, to open up to you and feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you need it, I suppose, in both professions. But from the point of view of spying, yes, you have to seduce in some ways your, the person you're trying to get information from that you are someone that is worthy of receiving this information. First, he was a spy for France, then Venice. Would this have been known? I mean, if it was, would this have been a liability? No. Different periods of time, different people. Remember, it was everything is personal. He worked for people, not always for the for the agencies. For the agencies, and sometimes maybe the agencies wouldn't even know where the information was coming from. Well, as you see, the reporting—I I don't know if the reports, as you you quoted the reports, and it's quoted that the reports were by him. That means that he used his name for the report, so everybody could have known that it was him. But reporting. who reads the report? Maybe de Bernice just gives the information and doesn't give the report. Exactly, but in in the Venetian times. The reports was people in the archive. People read. I mean, people read. So. Yes, and they were, they were in the archive. They were somewhere filed somewhere, you could say. So they could find out that he was reporting. But then maybe a lot of people were reporting. Yeah. The prison escape was, was probably a, a, a good calling card for him. You know, that certainly, no one had escaped this prison before. That would have put his name out there. And even if people doubted him, he said, well, I escaped from this place. He wasn't afraid to talk about it. He boasted about it in different different ways. The notoriety from that was probably useful, maybe helped him to, to get hired even to a certain extent. Yes, but like, of course, remember, you can't be undercover and talk about your real world, but he didn't have to in those days. I mean, he could go somewhere else and talk about him, his real self. No one, he wasn't compromised as a that he worked for some agency or worked for an organization. He was a private man doing things. So, okay, he was caught and 
what was he caught doing what and and why and his reputation and of course any woman on the way was charming and they all wanted to see what it's all about so obviously he had no problem to use his name to open up doors is there a connection though with between maybe people on the wrong side of the law you could say and espionage look if you tell me he was a murderer and a, and a sadist and a terrible person no. and so that's one thing but going against the acquisition or going against someone who didn't like you because you started with his wife and i'm sure there were plenty of those so well, it, there, it there's the story of like um uh in the movie catch me if you can you know where he is a forger and then the fbi ends up using him arrests him and then he becomes an informant for the f- yes. expert in forging for them yes you know so is there a connection between you know someone has a criminal past, but those skills might be useful in an operation. Of course. But it doesn't mean every criminal could be working for an organization. No, absolutely not. But there's certainly a connection or a thought process there sometimes. It depends on the, on the job and the person and the, the circumstances of the crime. Mm-hmm. So we'll uh, end off, as we always do, with a bit of a, a dramatization. And these are Casanova's own words from his memoir. My aim, and my only aim, has always been the glory of God and the Holy Republic of Venice, and that its laws may be exactly obeyed, always lending an attentive ear to the plots of the wicked, whose end is to deceive, to deprive their prince of his just dues, and to conspire secretly. I have over and again unveiled their secret plans, and have not failed to report all I know. It is true that I am always paid. But the money has never given me so much pleasure as the thought that I have been able to serve the blessed St. Mark. I have always despised those who think there is something dishonorable in the business of a spy. The word sounds ill only to the ill-affected. For a spy is a lover of the state, the scourge of the guilty and faithful subject of his prince. When I have been put to the test, the feeling of friendship which might count for something with other men has never had the slightest influence over me and still less the sentiment which is called gratitude. I have often, in order to worm out a secret, sworn to be as silent as the grave, and have never failed to reveal it. Indeed, I am able to do so with full confidence, as my director, who is a good Jesuit, has told me that I may lawfully reveal such secrets, not only because my intention was to do so, but because when the safety of the state is at stake, there is no such thing as a binding oath." Want to say anything? I mean, very, very interesting paragraph here on, on two ways. One, where his loyalties lie and how he sees himself and the profession as a guardian of the state and the country. And the other aspect is looking at his ability to get someone to talk, but understanding very well that there's something bigger than the trust that he has between himself and the, the source or the person who's feeling him there, giving him the information. And has no, any problem, I won't say to betray him, but that's not the word that he uses. But he feels that his job, his profession, his loyalties are very clear to him. And he uses the tool of secrecy to get information, not to keep it. And I think that's very interesting. It certainly is. This was Spies and Lies. Thanks for listening. And remember... Anything you say in a secret is never, never can be sure that it stays that way. Be careful who you tell your secrets to. Spies and Lies is a Grumpy Golem production with original scoring and mastering by Julian Dussault. Research for this episode was provided by Chloe Lau. 
If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to share with your friends and leave a comment or review wherever you listen from. If you have any questions or subjects you'd like for my father and I to cover, drop us a message and we'll do our best to get back to you. Until next time. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.